Kim Jong-un, the chairman of the Workers' Party of Korea and supreme leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, told Australia the other day that if we don't watch ourselves and stop zealously towing the American Party line, as he put it, he'll drop a nuclear bomb on us. Well, I'm thinking that's the first time Australia has ever been threatened with nuclear annihilation. But there doesn't seem to have been much panic in the streets. Walking around Kmart and the local food court on the weekend, it was obviously the last thing on everyone's minds. So clearly we think North Korea's a bit of a joke, not to be taken seriously. But is it? Is Donald Trump actually getting advice that he might need to take pre-emptive action to prevent them and us getting blown up? I turned to an Australian North Korea expert, Peter Hayes, of the Nautilus Institute in Berkeley, California, and honorary professor at the Centre of International Security Studies at Sydney University. He's been to the DPRK seven times, so I started by asking him what it's like. Well, it's not what you'd call a, what's the term, a tourist destination. It's a pretty tough place. You go well prepared, you go carrying a small hospital, if you can get it in a satellite phone so you can call for help. Do you need a satellite phone because there's no mobile phone network there? No, there is actually a strong mobile network of about 3 million users now in North Korea. It's a country of only you know 20 some million people, smaller than Australia's total population. But if you want to call for help in terms of medical advice, then you call the international, or at least we call the international clinic, which is a relationship we set up in Beijing for advice and then use our own traveling hospital because... The one thing you don't want is to be sick in a North Korean hospital. Um, having been inside quite a few of them, other than the amazing and uh, highly improvisational you know, medical staff who do incredible things with nothing, there isn't a lot of support there and there's no drugs and uh, you basically are on your own. So you know, North Korea is a functioning society. The social and political control in North Korea is probably tighter than any other uh, society in history, including Stalinist Russia. But that's actually not really a function of modern totalitarian administrative control, but more it's a very orthodox Korean cultural discipline and has millennia behind it of practice so that the top dog in what is essentially a vortex with a center at the middle of the whirlpool of power uh, controlling everything from the center down to the you know, dog catcher. Are you saying that the nature of the Koreans makes the Kim dynasty's control that much easier? Well, the control system is traditional and orthodox and goes back you know, many centuries and even millennia. And it's really the antithesis of China's control system, which is to have a center, a weak center that desperately tries to control the centrifugal forces of the big cities and provinces that are constantly breaking with central discipline, whereas in Korea it's ex the exact op opposite. And so my observation was that very often the Chinese were as or more flummoxed than Americans were about how Koreans behave. They didn't have a better inside in spite of their proximity and shared history than necessarily Americans or Australians, for that matter. One of the new category of Austral Americanos who appear on both sides of the Pacific and the census is a dual national. Uh, but 
when we bring Koreans or when we used to bring Koreans to the United States for training, for example, electrical engineers, we used to take them to Washington for training at the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. Now, Enraker in the United States runs a third of the American grid. It's a big operation, but they talk in the language of cooperatives. And guess what? You know, a substantial fraction of the North Korean economy is actually organized in cooperatives. And so they got on famously. They, they had the same language. They, they were able to talk to each other quite well. So it is a very weird and challenging place. And this is sort of you know, also keeping in mind the, the extraordinary human rights problems in North Korea, which are partly due to the nature of the political system and also the fact that that society's historical trajectory um, has gone through periods of uh, imperial and colonial occupation, World War II, then the Korean War in which everything was flattened and nearly two million Koreans died, They've never actually intersected with a modern society in which individual human rights was articulated and then embodied in laws and institutions. So there's not a lot of basis in North Korea for what we would call human rights. Does that explain why the Kim dynasty has not fallen to revolution or coup over the years and continues on? And in fact, does it explain to you or tell you that there won't be that kind of uprising in North Korea? I think people who know North Korea well, and there's a small number of Americans who do, who've been there dozens, in some cases, hundreds of times, and who are also uh, folks who've been involved in the intelligence system for many years, do not believe that there's any likelihood in at least the near term that Kim Jong-un's regime, or as you put, put it, the Kim dynasty or the Kim regime, now in its third generation, is going to collapse anytime soon. That is very remote. It's conceivable. Uh, it's probably a slightly increased probability under Kim Jong-un because the external pressures are as great or greater than before on the one hand, uh, and his own legitimacy in terms of his own prior achievements before he came to power with relatively little grooming by his father, only two or three years, whereas Kim Jong-il, his father, was groomed from, what, 1981 until 1994, when he was finally installed upon the death of Kim Il-sung as the actual you know, top dog in North Korea. He had over two decades of grooming. So this young chap has much less hands-on experience, and really his legitimacy does derive from the, from the lineage on the one hand and his ability to stand up and spit in the face of the great powers, whether it's the Chinese or the Americans at the moment. Is there any obvious poverty and hardship in North Korea? Yes, especially in the rural areas. And I mean, all North Koreans, even many of the elite, are hungry much of the time. But this is a society that is organized into segments, some 50 different classifications of social status and hierarchy. And at the lowest, those who are viewed as politically untrustworthy. In the past, their families may have been collaborators during the uh, early 20th century uh, through World War II when the Japanese were the colonial uh, overlords. Uh, they may have had property. Their families may have been pro-Beijing at one point or pro-Soviet at another, but you know they've been branded, and that's a multi-generational brand. They're viewed as uh, untrustworthy, and those people tend to have the poverty and starvation 
concentrated upon them because they're regarded as politically unreliable. And if they die, well, so be it. No, no, no real sweat. Uh, and if they uh, export themselves by migrating to another country and then complaining of the human rights transgressions in North Korea, well, no problem. We got rid of them. So, you know, from the North Korean perspective, the existence of poverty is kind of assumed. But on the other hand, we have to look at this realistically, that the livelihood in North Korea is well above that of most of sub-Saharan uh, Africa. You know, this is not a society that is constantly uh, in conditions of starvation. It's got a... You mean the average income? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sorry, the average per capita income, whether it's mer you know, measured in dollars or in purchasing power parity. Does everyone work for the government? Uh, no. You've really got three economies there, Alan. You've got a military economy, which includes you know, food production factories and all sorts of export industries and so forth that the military actually run and control, uh, along with a substantial fraction of the smuggling, the cross-border smuggling that goes on. Um, you've got a uh, line agency or civilian economy, you know, the electric power ministry or whatever, uh, then you have the courtly economy, which is sort of overlaid on the top, which is the rent extraction system of the Kim regime itself. And then alongside that, you actually now have a parallel uh, black market economy. And that economy in the service sector and in the line agency sector probably accounts now for more than a majority of what would be called in the West GDP. We don't know how to measure GDP in the North Korean economy, but roughly speaking, you could say that its annual GDP equivalent is around $50 billion per year. And uh, of that, probably around 20% is military, direct, uh, controlled by that military economy. Maybe 6 to $8 billion is controlled by the courtly uh, system and the rent extraction system and the smuggling. Uh, and then the rest is the line agency economy, and within that, the service sector is completely private enterprise. So there is a substantial market activity uh, in North Korea at this point, and without that, uh, they could not have adapted to the stringency and to the sanctions uh, in the way that they have. So this lends a great degree of resilience to this society, and you know, the concept of juche, which is the Korean concept of what we would call self-reliance, is not just a slogan. When you, when you go down to the factory level and to the farm level, um, you find that it's actually ingrained in practice and in the way that people think. To the Western engineer, you know, when I went in with a team of engineers, I, I would see North Koreans do things with electric power systems that we would not even think of doing. I mean, it was just incredible that you would do the things that they would do. Improvisation. Like what? what sort of things? Well, for example, we had, a, we had a broken cable from a wind turbine that we were building back to the powerhouse. And uh, even though we'd bought a container full of tools and equipment, we hadn't bought the specific items that were needed to actually repair this fairly high-voltage um, cable. And so what they did was they created a kind of cast out of clay. They lay the two cables down in the trench with the clay on each side of the brake sort of forced the two ends of the wire where it was cut together. Then they melted a bunch of tar, and then they poured the tar around the uh, wires. And then they tested it, and lo and behold, it worked. I mean, we just would never think of doing something like that because it's so outrageous. It's so 
much in contravention to the standards of how you run an electric power system safely. Sounds like a bush mechanic. Yeah, no, it is. That's why they could get on with the American rugged individualism in the cooperative form format. I think a, a lot of Australians would find the same thing, whether you're dealing with South Koreans or North Koreans. This is kind of in the Korean character. Do you think they've cobbled together a deliverable nuclear warhead? Well, we know that they've cobbled together a nuclear device that more times than not will blow up. We don't actually know whether they've got a deliverable warhead anywhere outside North Korea. We know that they could truck it, put it in a hole and blow it up in North Korea, uh, which is not necessarily a silly idea. I mean, one of the ideas that we had for our, I say our deliberately American nuclear weapons in the 70s up until the mid 70s was to put bombs in little holes and blow up huge craters so that North Korean tanks couldn't come south through the invasion corridors north of Seoul. And the North Koreans could equally do that to stop South Korean tanks driving north. So there are there is some utility in having a very crude device that you can't put on a, an aircraft, let alone a missile. Uh, but I think it's generally fair to say that by concentrating resources and almost certainly in my belief, with some Russian technical assistance, they have leapfrogged into a working nuclear weapon design. They may have a Pakistani design sold to them by AQ Khan um, some years ago, quite a few years ago. And uh, they certainly seem to be uh, building missiles at an intermediate range. I think the ICBM, the long-range missiles capable of hitting Australia or the United States are you know, utterly a fiction of the imagination at this point for lots of reasons we could go into. But where they've really focused, and this is militarily, you know, smart strategy, is on intermediate-range missiles that are solid fuel and mobile. That means land mobile on trucks uh, with tractor, you know, wheels uh, that can move around in caves and in rough areas in North Korea, be hidden and pop up, uh, and on submarines. And it's quite conceivable, I think, in the next three to five years that they'll have a working and tested version of that system. Where they would test an intermediate-range missile with a live warhead is an interesting issue. Um, after all, the United States did do that over the Christmas Island, uh, I think it was in 1962, with a Polaris missile, a live thermonuclear warhead test, uh, atmospheric test. And I think the Chinese did it back to Loch Nor a bit after that with one of their missiles. To my knowledge, the Russians and no other nuclear weapon state has ever live tested a missile, but it's conceivable the North Koreans would try to do that. Um, it's not likely, but it's possible. They've got to do some kind of test of these systems for there to be credible. And in my view, it's all about psychological warfare, and for that you need not much more than cardboard missiles and crude devices that blow up in mountains, whatever the real military capacity is. I don't think it's it's so integral to their strategy at the moment. So, Alan, the, the difference here, if I can just point this out to your listeners, is that nuclear weapons are used for three different things by the United States and by other nuclear weapon states. They're used to deter someone from doing something that they might otherwise do. So that's to stop them from doing something that they intend to do. And that can be immediately, right now, they have an actual intention. We're trying to stop them or it can be, in general, we want to stop them. So we maintain general deterrence as well as immediate deterrence capacities, and often it's mutual. 
you can also use nuclear weapons for compellants, which is to use threat to force someone to stop doing something that they're already doing, which is very different to deterrence. That's the essence of psychological warfare. And uh, that's, I think, what the United States and North Korea have been doing mostly with their nuclear weapons threats for the last two and a half decades. It's been mutual, acrimonious extortion, and it's failed miserably for both parties. And then the third thing you can do is reassure people with nuclear weapons, either your allies in the case of having a nuclear umbrella, we've got your back, or you can even use them to reassure your adversaries or third parties who are otherwise indifferent. We're not going to nuke you. We're going to have some form of monitoring and verification, sharing of information. You can relax. We would nuke you if you nuked us, but we're not intending to immediately. So uh, let's everyone you know, go on with life and keep the nuclear weapons you know, off, the front, off the front page. That's the other form of reassurance. It's generally known as arms control, um, and we have treaties that enshrine it and so forth. So they're the three basic categories. And what we've been playing at in the last few, well, since about 2013 in particular, is a particularly vicious form of this kind of nuclear threat making, which is about compellence, about psychological warfare, not about deterrence. And for both sides of the demilitarized zone, conventional weapons are the essence of the actual deterrence in a military sense, not nuclear weapons. And that remains the case today and it will for the foreseeable future. Do you think that President Trump is getting advice that he really must act in some way preemptively, given the nature of the regime there and also the, um, the progress they're making with nuclear and uh, non-nuclear weapons? No, I don't think he's getting such advice at all. I mean, in the uh, Korea policy review that has been just completed, and he's been briefed on a range of options, preemption is included, as is assassination, reportedly. But, you know, these are options that should be considered uh, as a matter of statecraft, uh, and then, you know, for pr reasons of prudence and realism, put aside. Uh, and my understanding is that that's exactly what has happened already and is likely to you know, continue to happen. And I have a, a lot of faith in the military. They're not stupid and they know the stakes. If there's another Korean war, not only will hundreds of thousands and millions of Koreans and Chinese and Americans and Japanese and other country citizens die in and around the Korean peninsula, but scores and then hundreds of thousands of American soldiers will be killed in the first month leaving aside nuclear weapons. This is just in a conventional war. This is the most serious, compressed violence, latent compressed violence on the planet, and is therefore extremely dangerous. But Vice President Pence said some tough things again in Yokosuka whilst he stood on the Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier. What is really noteworthy is that the aircraft carrier that was announced on uh, April the 8th was going to head up to the Korean Peninsula to stand by the peninsula this past weekend uh, in case they tested a nuclear weapon or fired a missile that might hit Japan or Guam or Alaska or somewhere. That aircraft carrier left Singapore, turned south, and is now in the Indian Ocean. So you know, you've got the military on the one hand saying tough things, but on the other hand, they're behaving you know, with a great deal of, of uh, risk management. In other words, there's some adult supervisors in the Oval Room even as Trump learns on the job. And I think that we can have some confidence that that will continue 
for the foreseeable future, that we're not about to go to war in Korea. And, you know, Koreans have a very good instinct for this. Koreans are just out living their life today. There's no run on the supermarkets. People are going to work, going to school. You know, there's no alarm in the streets. If Koreans picked up on something, we'd, we'd all know about it. And, of course, if they're going to preempt, they would also have to evacuate international civilians before they preempt, so the North Koreans would know about it. So this would not be a surprise preventive war. This would be you know, a well-signaled in advance, uh, and the North Koreans would know all about it. So we could expect all hell to break loose, but not overnight. How do you think the situation will unfold then? Well, I think that the North Koreans will continue uh, testing missiles. They'll continue to develop nuclear weapons until the United States changes its policies towards it or until China and Russia move the chessboard around enough for them to relax a bit on their development program. Remember, they're a small state. And the way Koreans have always thought about great powers is like elephants. And if an elephant comes onto your grass patch, you attack it with everything you have the moment it steps over that line. Because if you don't, it's going to keep on coming and it's just going to trample you. So it doesn't matter whether it's China, Russia, Japan, the United States. You know, I guarantee the North Koreans are going to behave like this uh, until the tonality changes and until there's a matching of the uh, strategy of maximum pressure with maximum engagement. That's what coercive diplomacy should mean. And the problem is at the moment, we have a two-bladed scissors. One blade is the military pressure and the threats, and the other is the diplomatic engagement and a strategy to actually end this conflict. And we're playing with just one blade. You can't cut paper with a one-bladed scissor. I thought they'd been trying to engage with them for years. No. The United States has had a policy of strategic patience, and essentially this was a policy to sit on our hands and let the North Koreans collapse of their own weight. And, of course, that didn't happen. Um, you know, If the North Koreans had capitulated, the United States under the Obama administration was willing to talk to them. But, you know, we don't have time to go into the history of the six-party talks and the talks before that in the U.S. DPRK agreed framework. And overall, I would say the North Koreans are more culpable for the collapse of the diplomatic dialogue than anyone else. But the United States has also made some serious contributions to failure at certain key junctures, which enabled the North Koreans to walk away. There's plenty of blame to share around. And the question is going forward, given that everything more or less has changed uh, in the geostrategic situation around Korea with the election of Trump and with Xi being in power, with Putin changing his line towards the West. The question is, what going forward is going to suit the interests of Kim Jong-un? Is there any conceivable circumstance in which he would freeze his nuclear weapons and or missile delivery system? development program. Is it even conceivable he could, over time, for the right outcome, give it up? Now, you know, there are those in Washington who simply say flat out that they know that that's incredible, that's not possible, to which my simple answer or my simple question is, actually, excuse me, but how do you know? You haven't been to Pyongyang. You've never talked to Kim Jong-un. Um, you don't have a clue what they might or might not do. The only way to find out is in good faith to talk to them. And you can't do that 
you know, brandishing a huge weapon and demanding that they give up everything in advance. That's not a credible, plausible uh, strategy, which China keeps on pointing out. And China's completely correct in this regard. When Trump and Pence say that China needs to step up, what do they mean? I don't think they have a clue, uh, Alan. I mean, <laughs> the Chinese are in an invidious position. They like North Korea because it's a thorn in the American side. It keeps the Americans tied down and embroiled in South Korea, which means between them and Japan is the United States. And that makes them very happy in a geostrategic sense. They, they feel well protected by that relationship. They enjoy having massive South Korean investment, trade and finance relationships, currently with setbacks, obviously, in the last six months. But you know, South Korea has been a very important economic player in the transitional strategy and the stability of Chinese communist rule. Uh, and, of course, the South Korean strategy was to increase the Chinese need for South Korea so that they could influence China's North Korea policy. And that's proven to be a little bit of a illusion. The Chinese power at this point is actually extremely limited. They have some influence, residual influence, but after they recognized South Korea in 1991-92 and did not insist that the United States immediately cross-recognize North Korea, the North Koreans have viewed the Chinese as traitors to the North Korean cause. And there's been you know, true uh, hatred between the two political cultures uh, ever since. There is, of course, still a residual blood bond from the Chinese volunteer soldiers who died. Uh, some, oh, I, th I think it's about 900,000 died in the Korean War. Um, and that bond remains. But um, there's absolutely no love lost between the two. So then it comes down to, okay, in raw power, what can the Chinese do? And uh, at, at the most basic level, they can keep the North Koreans in North Korea. They don't want a flood of refugees coming into China. They don't want North Korea to collapse because who knows who's got control of the fissile material and nuclear weapons. And if it did, the United States and South Korea would suddenly be on their border. Uh, they they uh, can inflict some pain on the regime by cutting off the coal exports to China most recently, but they probably would have reduce their coal imports anyway uh, because of changes in the world coal market. So they sort of got a two for one on that. They got the credit for the sanctions for something that was in their economic interest already. That leaves oil and food. Now, if you cut off the food, that's not going to make the regime hungry. It's going to make people hungry and could destabilize the regime that they actually want to continue to exist. So they're not going to do that. And after all, it's not really that expensive. You know, the whole of North Korea is the size of one large Chinese city. Uh, so it's not really a huge burden for China to send some food, which the North Koreans you know, ultimately pay for. And they send oil. They're the main supplier of oil. And oil, of course, is very important to the military. But when you think it through, the Korean People's Army have stockpiled the diesel and the jet fuel that they need for at least a year to fight what would, in fact, be a fairly short war in terms of mechanical energy using trucks and tanks and so forth. Um, so they've got the oil that they need to operate. Um, because of the coal export cutoff, they've got more coal than they probably need for heating purposes on the base and for industrial fuel. So 
you know, if the Chinese cut off the oil, they're not going to force the North Koreans to capitulate. They are going to cause some chaos and uh, instability. And given the stakes of the Korean Peninsula, why would they do that? Why would they potentially lead to the collapse of North Korea, which would incidentally you know, vastly damage not only the United States key ally, but the United States itself? That's what I think President Trump was referring to when he said, oh, in 10 minutes, President Xi explained to me that the situation was actually a little bit more complicated and nuanced and multidimensional than I perhaps had understood. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you, you just have to shake your head at, at how things are evolving. But China has some influence, but it has not had the ability to force the North Koreans to give up their weapons program. I've been talking to Peter Hayes of the Nautilus Institute in Berkeley, California, and honorary professor at the Centre of International Security Studies at Sydney University.